0: Hello, and welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To find future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places where podcasts are found. If you'd like to become a contributing member of the show, Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash non media Every little bit counts and we appreciate all the support we can get. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word, and so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy. Hey, before we start the interview today, I wanted to let everyone know some good news about the podcast. Thanks to the generous support of my patrons, and especially the generous labor of someone named DT Luna, Non Servium Media now has a website. That's right, now you can go to nonservium.media to find all of our content in one location. It's also pretty cool that DT was able to completely use open source tools to create the site. And by the way, you can find the source code we use at the bottom of the page. Some of the other features on non-servium.media include an RSS feed, comment capabilities, and an M4A downloading option. There are no ads, no trackers, just a basic website that anyone can visit free from privacy violations. We do plan on expanding and improving the website in different ways, so keep an eye out for that. Big thanks to everyone, especially DT, for making this happen. Anyways, I won't hold you up any longer. I hope everyone enjoys the sixth episode of the show. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson. And today we have on Christopher Richard Hudson, Jr. Christopher has a master's of science in industrial organizational psychology and has a wide ranging history of interactions in various political circles, including Students for a Democratic Society, Students for Liberty, Democratic Socialists of America, the Libertarian Party, and the Center for a Stateless Society. His activism is also wide ranging and has manifested in the form of simple educational outreach to tabling, to helping organize students led anti-racist and anti-war events without further ado Chris welcome to the show thanks for having me of course before we start with the questions I have uh, written here I'm curious what's the difference between the degree you have and say a general psychology degree
1: Sure. So I think what most people think of when they think of psychology degrees are probably like clinical psychology. So how my degree probably differs from that is it's much more focused on sort of workplace environment, sort of similar to what you might find in human resources. Uh, it's a bit more science focused than maybe more standard degrees that you might imagine someone doing like counseling with. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that's probably the largest difference. But it's sort of IO psychology is sort of the shorthand, and it sort of monopolizes the psychology of work field. It's called different things in different parts of the world, but most predominantly industrial organizational psychology.
0: I can see how that might mesh well with some of your criticisms of the state and other large hierarchical bureaucratic entities that exist, too.
1: Definitely. I mean, they. I sort of got into that field sort of at the same time I was um, exploring sort of the political culture that I sort of identify with now. They definitely reinforce each other in various ways.
0: Okay, well, hopefully we can get into that a little bit, but I guess for now we might as well jump right in. What's it like being a vegan, an atheist, and an anarchist, and how do you deal with the stigma that comes with all three of these labels?
1: I probably don't deal with it very well all the time, but... (laughs) I, uh, you know, I think the common thread of those labels and other labels I'm probably associated with is that they do sort of have, to a varying degree, like, somewhat of negative stigmas attached to them. I think really the best way to deal with those sort of things is uh, attempt to, like, circumvent people's expectations, but really just, like, on a basic level, like, be a decent person. Always attempt to, like, live out your virtues. So, like, people who you don't see eye to eye with can always, like, look at you and, and see sort of an example of, like, a reasonable person that they, you know, may disagree with but can see sort of as an example of, like, oh, I can. Understand how this reasonable person holds this position. Uh, I think a lot of people who are vegan or an atheist or an anarchist or whatever like there's typically like two types of people. They they're either like sort of overly antagonistic in this righteous sense. It's like because I'm morally correct, the tactics I take really don't matter. Like it's just a distraction from the, the larger issue or the larger injustice or whatever. And I don't think I'm strawmanning. I think there's like significant. I think there's a significant group of people that. That that do believe that, and uh, they tend to get the majority of the tension. And then on the other side, there's people that they they hold those positions. They hold these positions, and they and I believe that they don't. I believe that they hold them sincerely, but they more or less say things like, "Well, I'm this, but I don't really care what other people do. I'm not judgmental, or whatever. This is a personal decision. Um, I don't like people who are dogmatic. Um, Sort of like an anti-dogmatism position. Uh, And I don't necessarily identify." with either I mean I think all those positions I do hold and I do hold them like sincerely I think that they're from my standpoint like the correct positions to hold and I would like for other people to adopt them and because I feel that way like I think that my tactics matter like I think the way I talk about them and the way like I represent them matter it's not like a game for me to score points or to be cool like I actually care about people thinking about these issues Mm -hmm. um, in productive ways so that sort of sometimes puts me in, I would say, uncomfortably or not at home in either of those two camps.
0: Okay. Well, what made you eventually embrace anarchism?
1: I came to anarchism from libertarianism. And um, when I probably when I'll use the word libertarianism, I'll mean like the stereotypical, like American style libertarianism, um, like the private property right, sort of Milton Friedman influence libertarianism. So I was one of those senior year of high school was Ron Paul's 08 campaign. And that sort of got me into that um, a little bit. And I always had heard of anarchism from listening to like punk rock, but I didn't really know anything about it because probably I was more interested in like smoking cigarettes or (laughs) trying to get girlfriends than uh, (laughs) thinking about, you know, deep political issues. So getting into libertarianism, like exposed me to issues I maybe hadn't thought about and so by those issues sort of in isolation is how I heard about other people you know most prominently like Noam Chomsky in addition like you know getting into sort of online fights sort of Twitter was blowing off interacting with people like Kevin Carson and that's how I heard about groups like the Center for a Stateless Society and then like by extension learning about people like David Graeber or Scott Crow, and then sort of historical people like the uh, Goldman, et cetera. Kind of typical. You just sort of like go down rabbit holes. And I always sort of felt that those positions, they would shock me or like some proposition like, you know, people are equal or domination is wrong, like, or, you know, something more civic like abolish prisons. Like it always shocked me. And I was like, I don't I don't know how that's going to work. Or like, I can't envision something like that. But it always seemed like, intuitively correct to me. And so I think that's what got me into anarchism and kept me into anarchism because I think it's just hard to escape the fact that freedom is valuable. I think freedom is an and in itself and like dominating others is wrong. The burden of proof always should be on the person like attempting to extend authority on others. And sometimes it may be justified, but I think often it's not. At least the burden of proof should be in that direction. And so I think when you accept that which i think a lot in a lot of ways is common sense then i think that has a lot of political implications which is how you get to something like anarchism
0: when did you become vegan were you a vegan in, in high school and also how does veganism relate to your politics yeah no i uh was
1: not a vegan i've been vegetarian Almost my entire life, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist, like sort of like a, a, a lasting cultural impact of Adventism or cultural trait of Adventism is uh, vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of like always more or less been my regular diet. Like not my, my entire family is a vegetarian, but it's always just been there. And so I never really developed like a huge craving or taste for meat. But yeah, that was just totally for like selfish. Like I just don't really care for meat and it's cheaper not to buy it reasons I don't really care about animals, whatever. Um, so I didn't really become vegan until like, I don't know, three or four years ago. I mean, not very long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely didn't even start thinking about the, or I definitely didn't even start thinking about like animal rights or anything like that till like six or seven years ago. Maybe it was always in the back of my mind, but I think you can always come up with some kind of excuse why like your individual actions don't really matter. But a lot of that did have to do uh, with my sort of like ethics changing somewhat and becoming an anarchist and sort of thinking about like, well, what areas am I ignoring or not? Seeing clearly, I've always like sort of been like somewhat interested in history, and it's, it's crazy to always think about like how are these people so blind to this ethical atrocity, or you know how do they have this otherwise like great person have this such stark moral blindness, blindness to this issue? And so I, I I am always a little bit anxious about what I'm morally blind to. Animals, I think, was one of those things. I don't know that led me to do some reading, talk to some people. That you know, once I think all my objections were sort of answered, I think well. I can either be, like, intellectually honest or just sort of lie about excuses that I don't think are actually good excuses, but I'm just doing anyway. It was hard to, like, maintain calling myself, like, an anarchist or a leftist when I was, like, more or less convinced of an issue, but wasn't willing to, like, put that action into practice.
0: Is there a role government plays in subsidizing animal cruelty?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like that could be a conversation in and of itself. It's sort of funny how so many anti-capitalists don't even acknowledge that. And in a lot of ways, like the most anti-capitalist thing you can do is to opt out of the sort of animal industry and, you know, not just not just even food, uh, but, you know, breeding or pets or animal testing. I mean, it's all just so corrupt and so caught up and so subsidized and protected, it's hard to really justify participating in it and call yourself an anti-capitalist or even a pro-capitalist, pro-free market capitalist libertarian. I think it's really hard to justify participating in that. I mean, the most obvious way like the state subsidizes animal cruelty is like through direct farm subsidies. I mean, it's just an immense amount of money. I think like 2014, it was like over $10 million. Yeah, it was like over $10 million that the meat industry contributed just to political campaigns. And, like, that's not even including lobbying. That doesn't, That number doesn't include lobbying. So there's obviously, like, direct subsidies that the government gives to farming in general, and most of those end up helping meat industries. There's also, like, I think it gets a lot of attention, and a lot of people don't see this as, like, a protection of animal cruelty, but uh, another, it might even be the highest, but most farm subsidies go to, like, soybean and corn. And so if you look at like what your food is made out of it, not just things that are food, but like almost everything has corn. But like the, the the primary benefactors of soybean and corn subsidies aren't people like eating those things. It's the factory farmers, factory meat farmers, because those things are used to feed the livestock, feed the cows or whatever. So you're you're just subsidized. It's sort of like a hidden subsidy because you're subsidizing the food, uh, lowering the cost of keeping sort of this high-volume meat industry and dairy industry. So those are, I think, those are the two obvious ways. Um, I think, you know, the, the other way is something I wasn't totally aware of. You know, I think, you know, anyone who knows a little bit about, like, nutrition knows how maybe the history of, like, nutritional research is a little bit shady or hard to, you know, not, not always, like, the best science was done in nutritional research. And a lot of that's understandable because it's, it's hard to do. It, it's difficult research to conduct. But I, I wasn't aware of how involved the meat industry specifically was in shaping sort of the federal dietary guidelines. Like even the food pyramid, like the old food pyramid that you don't really see anymore, but even that like was sort of influenced by the meat industry, sort of saying you know you need to have at least this many servings of this, even though like that wasn't like the original intent of the pyramid. And you know we were still in that like no again like no one uses the pyramid anymore but that's like permanently in people's minds or people still have it on their refrigerators. I think what we're seeing a lot recently, which is just so crazy to me, is you know the animal farming industry influencing legislation that like defines what meat is or what counts as milk. Uh, like in Nebraska, they had a bill or they considered a bill that was like you have to define meat as any edible portion. Of any livestock or poultry or, or carcass or part thereof, um, which like explicitly excludes lab-grown or insect or plant-based food pro- products. I mean, I think any sort of person with like inch of libertarian leanings has to look at that and just be appalled that that's actually being considered. That those things are actually on the table in multiple states, more or less, sort of defining. Animal-free alternatives out of like your supermarket. Is this is this the
0: the meat industry sort of trying to stamp out potential competition?
1: Yeah, it, that's, that's exactly what it is. Like, and you see a lot of it's 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 funny how it unites sort of do-gooders or paternalists on like the left and the right as far as like, well, people are just not smart enough to know what <laughs> real milk. Is. And I I I totally I you know completely reject that. I think you know it's just sad the the mental gymnastics people will go through to defend the the status quo, which is just people you know consuming animal products. Everyone knows that soy milk isn't cow milk and right. uh, even if they didn't, I'm not sure you could easily there are clear like if, if you have like large concerns about like information like the free flow of information, there are alternatives to uh, banning, The uh, labeling of it milk, you could just, you know, the clear alternative is something like for people like the non-GMO or certified vegan uh, labels. You can just, you know, require that this has to have a required labeling like vegan, certified vegan. Like that's like clearly like a less, I think, invasive alternative, even if I think there are good objections to that also. Like another recent one that I think Reason wrote about was like there's this Florida charter school that can't open. It was it was. Attempting to be like a vegan, a totally vegan charter school. And it can't open or it's been having trouble opening because the USDA guidelines require having dairy milk available for for meal reimbursement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, opening a school is very expensive. You know, thinking about how like schools themselves or the military or these sort of like state run industries just suck in and serve as like an artificial consumer for animal products. I think is another sort of indirect way, one way that people don't think about of how like the meat industry or the dairy industry, it didn't like happen in some natural market. It's like clearly propped up and protected. Uh, I think the last way, like the, the, probably the most horribly unjust way that the state protects or like encourages animal suffering is honestly like like the criminal justice system specifically like harsh prosecutions, obviously like food libel laws, like lower standards for libel if it's against food companies. The most famous person to get in trouble was like Oprah, just for talking about, I think the beef industry maybe. Even the, you know, the most, like someone like Oprah is needed and protected if you're going up against the like animal farming industry. So again, like food libel laws, I mean, like that's broad. That's something animal activists have been doing for, years as far as like sneaking in cameras and leaking them mm-hmm. and so that's who they typically go after recently like this is something I, I also wasn't totally aware of but like a high profile animal rights case is like the direct action everywhere activists they i think they did like an open rescue for a few animals i can't i don't know if they're pigs or or something like that. But like in Utah, where it happened, like stealing property worth less than like a $1,500 is generally considered a misdemeanor. But there, lawmakers have more or less carved out like an exemption specifically for the benefit of the animal agriculture industry. So if that property that someone's taking is an animal, no matter what the economic value was that that animal may have, the crime is automatically a felony.
0: Mm.
1: And so these direct action activists, like, Potentially face decades in prison. Wow. For charged with multiple felonies, and so those are just like again, like you stack those up. I think it's hard, even if you're not convinced of like the ethical reasons to be vegan, like on animal rights grounds, which you know I think a lot of you know good-willed people aren't convinced of that. I think. When you look at those things, it's hard to morally participate in or at least financially support. That's what it means by participating. You're financially supported. Financially support an industry like so unjust and so corrupt and so tied in with the worst aspects of what the state does. I mean, that's how I see it.
0: Yeah, I hear you. But given that we don't live in a truly free market and that these subsidies do exist, do you think that our consumption choices can really have that much of an impact?
1: Um, I mean, individually, probably not on like a macro level, but I don't think they have no impact. Like, I don't think the argument's as strong as like, say, voting, like against voting. So obviously, like you impacting policy by your individual choices may be unlikely um, or as you know, not maybe is unlikely, but you impacting like what your local restaurant serves when you purchase something is a lot more likely. Mm. There's much more of like a domino effect there than like you influencing like who's going to be president of the United States. There's a lot more like midsteps that you influence one actor, which has much more influence than you, that influences another that has much more influence than both of you, um, et cetera. So I mean that's sort of why I think like individual decisions are a, li- a bit more impactful as far as like what you purchase or like how you participate in the economy that includes people who aren't vegan. Like Again, like that includes people who, you know, I'm not vegan, I like this, but when I go out to eat, I'm not gonna, I don't want to support factory farming. I mean, that's just easy to be like, hey, do you have a vegan alternative? And say vegan, like I think normalizing that word is also important. Or do you have like a veggie burger? Or you, do you guys have vegan cheese? And they will give you a weird They'll give you a weird maybe look or no. But like then you've 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 already showed that there's a demand for something, and people like providing products if they think they're going to get a profit. Something I see maybe differently than a lot of other vegans, and I don't want to straw man organized veganism. Big vegan, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I think a lot of people sort of view ethics not all ethics, but maybe animal ethics, as like a dichotomy between being vegan and non-vegan. And I think that's clearly wrong because it's clearly a continuum and it's not even a linear continuum. So, you know, vegetarian is just like a label we give to like one position, I think, on the road to trying to live as ethically as possible, at least regarding how we treat non-human animals. I think veganism is a step further Um, I think veganism is the correct position. I think it's like a pretty low bar for someone in like the United States, like middle class more or less. But it's it's still just like a label given into continuum because like if you're vegan, plenty of vegans still, I think unwisely wear, maybe wear wool or use leather. Like those are also other, I think, very important things to abstain from if you're concerned about animal welfare. In addition. Like a lot of like anti-vegans will point this out. I think not in good faith always, but it's still valid. It's more or less impossible to live completely ethically towards non-human animals. Like just me eating plants, animals were killed to sustain the plants that I ate in my salad. So, the, I mean, that's just a reality. Or who knows what I hit because I was driving a car and didn't notice. So we're, we're it's, it's impossible to live without Suffering. That's why I'm not sure it's correct to say, like, this is the moral position because I'm not sure the moral position doesn't necessarily exist yet. We're just we're sort of attempting to approach being more moral in general. So that said, I think any effort you do like on that continuum is a good thing. I don't want to excuse behavior. Like, I don't think that you're okay if you just eat pork and you decide, well, I'm good enough because I don't eat pork on Tuesdays. Like, I think that's better. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's worth doing if that's all you can do. You know, I, I think people are most people are capable of doing a little more than that. Even if doing the most you can do, like in my case, the most I can do right now is, is be quote unquote vegan. I'm clearly not ethical if you investigate under the microscope all my actions. But just because our moral, just because our actions are not perfect, that's not, in my opinion, just not an excuse to ignore all our ethical decisions in general.
0: So I have a couple more questions about veganism and then we can move on to some other topics. You mentioned it earlier, but what are your thoughts generally on actions like the Animal Liberation Front?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not, you know, the foremost expert on the ALF or their history or whatever, but I mean, uh, I think what most people mean is sort of direct action that maybe use a sabotage or things like that, like property rights and i'm not against that i i generally support what the alf does i think they have a history of going through a good amount of sacrifice for you know showcasing a lot of harm information i mean i'm not a pacifist so i'm not against things like sabotage or open rescue or whatever obviously everyone can't do those things but i think you know 100 years from now the groups will look back on fondly are the ones that probably took what looked like radical actions to stop what they perceived to be a huge injustice. I, not all vegans agree with me, including not all radical vegans. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but he, he does The abolitionist Approach, which is a good podcast I recommend, and he also has a few books. And he's a radical animal rights advocate, but he's also, I, I'm pretty sure he identifies as a pacifist. I think he has uh, understandable, well thought out reasons that i just not sure I totally agree with. But what, what's that
0: podcast called again?
1: It's called The Abolitionist Approach. Okay, you can well. also just Google think Abolitionist Approach and it'll come up. He's done a few podcasts, but that's the main feed.
0: Okay, I'll have to check that out. Well, what's your favorite vegan food?
1: My favorite vegan food? Uh, Oreos.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's hard to top that. And it's always funny when people find out that Oreos are vegan too yeah that was the best that was the best thing i probably discovered
1: but yeah i I mean i've been having the impossible burger as often as i can i think that's great there was a recent Vox podcast with ezra ezra klein um where he talks with someone about more or less how like the meat alternative industry has sort of evolved i thought it was super interesting how like you know veggie burgers in the past were more or less made of like the leftovers of food and that's why they just tasted awful and but now we're like why don't we just make good food that everyone vegetarian or not will like Just that one mindset is so recent and is like basically changed the game.
0: All right. So moving on a little bit, you mentioned earlier that you had a religious upbringing. I was curious, what was that like for you? And why are you now an atheist?
1: I was a Seventh-day Adventist, which for those who don't know, is sort of a conservative Christian sect of Christianity and sort of emphasizes the soon return of Jesus and the Seventh-day of the Sabbath. So it has a lot of a lot in common with Judaism in a lot of ways. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. I took it seriously. I was a Seventh-day Adventist chaplain when I was in college at a high school. I directed a Seventh-day Adventist summer camp. So I, I think that my, like, religious street cred should be pretty well established. And I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist anymore. The reasons I had that convinced me that a God that most theists describe as a God, like my reasons for believing that something like that exists, I just no longer found very convincing. And it was a slow, like my, for lack of a better word, deconversion was not a fast, it was a very slow process. It was, to be honest, like a very painful process, damaged a lot of relationships, some that are still damaged. That was a very important, I think, developmental move for me as far as, you know, this is what I believe in my heart or don't believe in my heart Should I be honest about this or not? And I wasn't honest about it for a good part of my life. Uh, I lied about it for a long time, and I'm kind of ashamed about that. But, you know, I think like the best thing anyone can do, no matter what you believe or how you identify, is like to be as honest as you can with the people around you. And the people that matter, the people that actually are valuable, will have your back.
0: Yeah, becoming non-religious for me was not the easiest experience ever. Uh, Also, it always frustrated me too because when I was a Christian and having doubts and everything and I would ask someone something about, something I was questioning, like why would God bother bringing someone into existence if he knew that they were going to not choose Christ and go to hell for eternity? I would just think of these things and approach like different elders and stuff and I often, with the... With a few exceptions, I often was basically just shut down. You know, stop questioning it. Do you believe in Christ or not? Your eternal fate is at stake here. Which side are you on? I, I, I kind of feel like sometimes if I would have just received and, I don't know, that's a good question. I might have stayed a little longer in the faith.
1: Definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think I lucked out a little bit that I had sort of a mix of those kind of people. And to anyone listening that's like a Christian, I don't want to dismiss maybe your experiences because I know that like Christianity is a very broad spectrum of belief. A lot of people that I respect a lot, and have influenced me, and still continue to influence me as a Christian. So you know, I, I think what we're talking about is clearly like a, a specific subset of Christianity, which, you know, in the U.S. is like evangelical or fundamentalist Christianity, which mm-hmm. aren't necessarily, are sometimes used synonymously, but aren't are are aren't synonymous, but sort of both of them. But we, I think we have to be honest, I think even religious people have to be honest, is that those are the people that dominate the Christian conversation. So... That said, I think what you're talking about is, you know, the the demonization of doubt, like doubt in of itself is wrong because, you know, what's, what's valued in that, in that kind of Christianity is belief itself. Like it's wrong to disbelieve. It's not about what you do or like what kind of virtuous person you are. It's specifically like, are you convinced of this? And if you're not convinced of this, well, then that in and of itself is wrong, which is really terrible and really terrible to like tell a young person uh, and a really and, and clearly not how we interact with like the rest of the world in general. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to sugarcoat it. it. It is terrible.
0: All right. You're an atheist. What do you make of different arguments that might push you, say, at least in an agnostic direction? Like there's different arguments for the existence of God, like the uncaused cause. Have you ever been challenged by some of those things?
1: Not really. I mean, I heard all those. Those were the things that convinced me of theism to begin with. So, like, losing those, like, you don't really hear, like, different versions of those very often. So, I mean, like, I don't, it's not, I don't think some of those are legitimate questions. It's not understandable why someone might be convinced of that. But the clearest in-your-face error in, like, a lot of those general arguments, that that clearly doesn't get you to Christianity. Sure. I mean, like, not even, not even remotely close. It, it doesn't even necessarily get you to a god. It just gets you—unless you define god so broadly that it, like, ceases being anything, like, remotely identifiable as a god. Like, sort of, like, what's the difference between a god and just, like, a very powerful alien? Why a god and not a committee of gods? Clearly, like, you're smuggling in a lot of assumptions or really just a lot of, like, cultural biases that we just sort of take for granted about what a god is. Or, like, god is all the constants of the universe— And it's like, well, I mean, if you just want to, if we're just calling God things, then like I can call God this cup. And I guess I'm a theist now. And I don't want to argue with people about like what they should or shouldn't call things. But what most, I think when you talk to religious people, what they mean, theistically religious people, what they mean by God is something pretty specifically like something with intent that still exists, that uh, intervenes in the natural world, that has like characteristics. That's really what they mean. Even that's a pretty broad definition of God
0: what do you think about the reactionary tendencies that the skeptic and atheist communities can sometimes have
1: you know i've thought about that since i became an atheist (laughs) uh and it's sad because like you i think you chose your words i don't know how carefully you chose your words but like they're very accurate because i don't think it's accurate to say like conservative tendencies or right-wing tendencies or you know whatever or general asshole tendencies it's like a very awful reactionary tendencies that have seemed to have gotten progressively worse amongst the quote-unquote atheist community. Yeah, I mean, I I honestly go back and forth with what I think those causes are, how to combat them. I mean, I think, uh, honestly, like a lot of it is probably pretty similar, and I mean, probably the reasons are pretty similar to the the reasons that there's like reactionary tendencies within like general libertarianism. Um, I think those... You know, being a libertarian for a while and then joining an atheist, I I was pretty shocked with how similar they were, even like as far as like how the factions broke down. Probably the clearest reason for why like problems in general exist is, you know, just privilege. Like those communities are dominated by white men. And I think... When that happens, there's inevitably the analysis comes from a place of privilege and ignores other things that should be as important or more important in your analysis or causes you to ignore a problem. The other thing is just general like in-group, out-group bias that I think allows people to just give cover to problematic elements just for the sake of in-group loyalty and protection. I think you see that all around us. Those problems aren't specific to atheism. I mean, like maybe the only thing specific to something like, atheism, like the atheist community is like I think a lot of people become atheists or similar to people joining like radical politics because they're contrarian, which I don't think is necessarily like a bad quality to have, but shouldn't be guiding your decisions. And I think that leads a lot of people to some like really problematic views, like feminism is whatever, cancer or something like that. So, I mean, all those are kind of general answers that I don't think totally explain, you know, what it is about if there's anything about the atheist community specifically that resulted in sort of the reactionary element that's in some ways dominated, uh like grown to dominate a lot of like the atheist movement, unfortunately. Not to say that there aren't really awesome atheist activists. There are. If you go to any like general atheist conference, which I have, most of them are awesome. Most of them always have some kind of like feminist panel or whatever. I mean like the 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 actual like people doing the work, most of them are, are great. Um, but a lot of like the celebrity atheists are just mind numbingly terrible. I'm sure some of it has to do with hero worship in general, like the hero worship causes you to excuse behavior. I've always been troubled by, and this isn't specific to like the reactionary people, but when I like, joined or got involved with certain atheist communities i was always sort of troubled what seemed to be like a very sloppy like atheist identity politics where like those sort of issues were like all that mattered and dominated the analysis separation of church and state which i think is important but like that would just dominate the conversation as far as like we need to smash this christian school because it teaches creationism and it's like look creationism is bunk and i am against it but have you been to schools in general that may not be the worst thing happening in schools in Mm -hmm. general Mm-hmm. Um so th- things like that that I think this sort of sloppy atheist identity politics that was just very reductionist not not only caused people to ignore other very important things that atheists as atheists should care about but also caused people to get upset and defensive whenever you moved the conversation in that direction. Mm-hmm think that's where a lot of it started when a lot of atheists got into feminism or saw like hey look we're pointing out some sexism or in the atheist community and like you know that was one of our reasons for leaving organized religion like that's where you think I, I think a lot of like the youtube atheist community just completely like turned reactionary towards those kind of beliefs, like no, we want to talk about this. You're distracting from the subject. Kind of similar to what, like some socialists are just incredibly like class reductionists and don't want to talk about anything else and anything. And if you bring up like gender or, or race, it's just a distraction from class. So yeah, I think that's where a lot of it started. And then unfortunately, there was an audience for that. But a lot of that happened and it predated sort of the rise of the alt right by a couple of years and Trump. And then like when it combined, when like those Events, Trump, the alt right, sort of like the unity of these all other like far right movements and other like fascist movements. It all just kind of like I I sort of hope they would all just compete and tear each other apart. And like the opposite happened. They more or less just reinforce one another, and it hasn't really gotten better, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. You mentioned libertarianism, and unfortunately, in my experience especially in Austin, the word is basically interchangeable with something like um, vaguely pro-Trump or sometimes overtly pro-Trump, maybe infowars supporting conservatism that may support legalizing pot or something. So my question is, what's the problem with libertarianism and can it be saved?
1: Man, that's that's another thing I probably go back and forth on uh, (laughs) and change my mind on like every two years. Um, I mean, I think the main problem with libertarianism is what I said before, it's, it's it's just, it's a privilege problem, like, that's where a lot of it comes, even, like, a lot of, like, the good libertarian organizations, I think they just suffer from a privilege problem, or, like, their bad takes could be easily solved by just, like, a general, like, social justice 101 article sometimes. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to, like, call it an organization, but, like, organization X, imagine how much better they would be if they just had, like, a diversity department, or, like, one person like dedicated to that issue, I think would just solve a lot of, in a lot of ways are just like ignorance problems. That's like the big reason or the big problem I see, like from my vantage point. That said, like I'm less involved with organized libertarianism than I've been in the past. And every time I like semi get involved recently with maybe some like libertarian party, I very quickly regret it. I was talking to a friend of mine who um, sort of talked about like, I balance, I get burned out on communities. And I think my way of the way i dealing with that is just having multiple communities. I, I'm burnt out on veganism or I'm burnt out on, like, hardcore kids or I'm burnt out on socialists. or I, I, I have, like, enough that I can, like, take a break and, like, go on to another that, like, still gives me my, like, sense of belonging. Yes. That's really how I deal with all of that. Beyond that, like, problems with libertarianism are in many ways just cultural. A lot of libertarians are just former conservatives, so they still bring in a lot of that conservative baggage. They're like property reductionists. So it's like they see liberty as like starts and ends at property rights, Mm -hmm. which is not to say that certain property rights aren't important or it's not very sophisticated, let alone historical analysis of uh, liberty. And, And also, I think like a really awful, like confusing problem that doesn't seem to exist in other political communities is libertarians. They tend to take their political philosophy and then that ends up. Becoming their ethical philosophy, so they see things the state shouldn't do or the politics shouldn't be involved in X. Therefore, there's no reason to have anything to say about X. And I don't think that's a straw man either. I mm. mean, I, I think we see that all the time. And I, and I and I also like reject that conclusion. I mean, I think like your ethics and politics interact and um, and, they, and they matter. But you see that with as far as something like free speech. Well, the government shouldn't censor this. Therefore, like, we shouldn't say anything critical of this. Or it's their free speech to say this. It's like, what how, What does that have anything to do with me telling them that they're incorrect about it? Like, totally. Uh, like, really, really sloppy ethical thinking like that. Like, let alone, like, important issues like the environment or, you know, even animal rights. Like, if you don't think the state should have anything to do with, it's like, running animal a welfare, like, there's clearly, like individual action you can take but i think a lot of libertarians just like well i just don't care about anything beyond aggression like the most historical libertarian that i disagree with probably the most didn't have that view clearly ethics beyond the narrow place we put what the government or the state or what politics should play a part in and and you know as i'm talking about it maybe maybe libertarians aren't different than other religious community other uh, political communities because like These other political communities just – they don't see a difference either. They're like, well, I care about X, so we should just have like a government committee take in charge of it. And there's like no difference between like me and my community like working to solve this problem and like a bunch of bureaucrats doing it. So hmm. maybe I take it back. But I think that's like a really terrible like unintended consequence of libertarianism being a very narrow – like an intentionally narrow political philosophy is that it influences people's ethics to be like unfortunately narrow. Hmm.
0: Okay. So you have a psychology degree, and you're just discussing libertarianism. What are your thoughts on psychiatrist and libertarian Thomas Sas?:
1: I think his political work was probably better than maybe his social science. He was saying like immeasurably important things at a time where like homosexuality was still a mental Ill, like called a mental illness, or like drugs were heavily criminalized and was, like, morally—drug use was, like, morally condemned. You have to, like, think, look at the context in which he was speaking to appreciate really how valuable he was. The reality is that, like, most psychiatrists will— which I'm not a psychiatrist, but most psychiatrists look at him, I think, in that way they, they seem as politically very important. I don't know if they necessarily give him enough credit for influencing psychiatry and maybe psychology also in like a more moral direction, a more, a less maybe authoritarian direction. I don't know if they give him necessarily the credit he deserves in that, but mm-hmm. I think they acknowledge that he was right in that regard, but maybe not necessarily right completely about the thesis that there's no such thing as mental illness. Like there are very few, very few people, especially psychiatrists, um, accept that. But I mean, I think You don't have to necessarily accept his strong conclusion to see like we're just like arbitrarily putting categories on of like social behavior like we don't like or that we don't think is normal or, you know, is inconvenient. I mean, I think that's something where you have to always be questioning, especially if you care about human autonomy, human differences, you know, people being themselves and it being okay for people to be themselves. You know, what's more stigmatizing than calling something like a mental illness or saying someone is unnormal? Someone who I often disagree with, Thaddeus Russell, Even he, one of his lines is he's very hesitant to ever call someone or something someone does crazy, Mm -hmm. and he thinks that's one of like the worst stigmatizations you can do, and like has been historically used really just to dismiss uh, inconvenient like behavior and ideas. So yeah, I mean that's sort of my general thoughts on. Thomas Zaz, I mean, I think, I think everyone should probably read the Myth of mental illness, but he talked about a lot more than that. I mean, I think he just, he doesn't get enough credit and he's not as well known as he should. And he was way ahead of his time. He was way ahead of his time, like as a person in general, but also as a libertarian, he was way ahead of his time on a ton of issues.
0: Yeah. Um, so would Saz reject the utility of categorizing certain human behaviors at all? Because it seems to me that it's, there's institutional problems with psychology and psychiatry, and it gets used as a weapon often for bad. But that isn't to say that like the study in and of itself couldn't be useful in sort of categorizing certain tendencies within individuals just to further understand them. So I guess, first of all, as a question about SARS, Does Does he think there's absolutely no utility in documenting and trying to categorize certain human behavior within individuals and do you think it's useful
1: you know i don't know that for sure i mean i think that's that's definitely an interesting question i think maybe someone like sharon presley might know or angela keaton but my my guess on what i've read i think he was just so skeptical and so discouraged by what he saw that i think he would be skeptical of even that like the practice itself i think he would just see as just a road to potential use and not necessarily like i'm sure he thought like there were just better things they could be doing i don't i mean i don't personally agree with that i mean i think that that's true i think those risks oh i think those things always exist you know psychology has much less political power these days we don't have like mental institutions to like the degree we did we've replaced them with prisons uh yeah I think in a lot of ways we could use a lot more psychologists helping people with mental health like what they perceive as like mental health issues. Like if you feel you're sick, whether or not you're sick, you have every right to like approach a medical doctor about your concerns. And I think that same philosophy should be applied to like your mental health. So, yeah, so part of that involves... Just like studying the body, studying the mind, like involves doing some categorizing. Like even if it's in many ways arbitrary, just because it makes things easier. Like it's impossible not to, you know, whether it's medical treatment or not. But yeah. So, like, the most obvious categorizing that's pretty controversial is personality tests. You know, like I'm not super fond of personality tests, but or a few of them do have, like, a good amount of, like, scientific rigor behind them, like the big five. And, you know, it's not that these are, like, coded personalities into the universe, but it sort of helps us do further research. It helps us sort of predict certain things and understand, like, what motivates certain people.
0: What role should psychology play in political philosophy?
1: You know, psychology is just, like, the study of the human mind or human behavior. So, I mean, I think there's a general need to, like, understand people, like, how people are and how they react to things and what motivates them instead of just doing, like, armchair theorizing. For example, like, Michael Humer, like, in his book, The Problem of Political Authority, he has a whole chapter dedicated to, like, the psychology of authority, which I think is probably one of his best chapters. As far as, like, why we have a lot of these intuitions, like, what seem to be intuitions that, like... Political authority is justified. I think that clearly made his case a lot stronger. And if other people would read, maybe like have them doubt maybe their own political philosophy or deference to authority in that regard. Um, In addition, I mean, I think just studying, you know, where biases come from, like what causes people to change their minds. When you're doing political philosophy, especially like when you get to like sort of specifically like thinking about structures or like societies, you have to deal with people as they actually exist. I think that's a problem in a lot of libertarian socialist thought is it sort of often assumes that we're dealing with a society of leftists Hmm. with like these very good moral values with no biases. Like words like incentives rarely appear like a lot of libertarian socialist or like anarchist work unfortunately it's not i mean it's not completely absent but it's a problem that i think would make if overcome would make the work a lot more better you know in addition i think psychology kind of has a bad rap across the political spectrum and like that's it's understandable because a lot of what people's vision of psychology is is like pop psychology or celebrity psychologists that don't really have a lot of like research basis or like research history I think a lot of people are like skeptical of psychology because of like what it was there again. Like the picture is like what it was in the '60s, like with Freud and Skinner, which neither of which were very like research based at all. Like no one calls themselves a Freudian. <laughs> um, that's just not a thing. But that's but that's still like the only psychologist some people know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they still see psychology as, like, this armchair theorizing, and that's just not what it is. Most psychologists aren't clinical at all. Like, they're researchers. They're research-based. So psychology, since the 60s, basically, psychology has become research-focused and theory-oriented. I mean, that's the reason most people drop out of psychology in college. Like, undergraduates like, man, I didn't know there was, like, all the statistics I had to do. I didn't know there was so much math. I thought I was just, you know, whatever their stereotype was. Uh, <laughs> little did they know they'd take like two years or you know double or triple that if they go to grad school of statistics or advanced math and research methods so i mean that's what it is now it's valuable to understand the psychology of freedom in general sharon presley has like a few essays on this most of which i think are pretty good I'm just like people just want to have autonomy and want to be free i mean like Back to my own area, IO psychology, like, we know that authoritarian bosses just don't cause uh, work satisfaction or productive workplaces. Like, people uh, don't respond well to being dominated. It's sort of like a safe way of saying that bosses themselves, like, basically, like, what we think of as bosses are often counterproductive, which I think has enormous implications if you care about politics or if you're interested in, like, economies or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that's really the value of like what psychology can help combat not just psychology but like you know social science in general and the hard sciences and whatever you always want sort of a well-balanced well-balanced salad of ideas and influence when you're making
0: your analysis i think cool so one more question about psychology who's your most favorite and least favorite psychologist and why
1: most favorite is a really hard question that i'm afraid to answer because (laughs) i feel like psychologists that I was either influenced by or like I think have written good things I find out later that they've said something or done something like completely ridiculous and objectionable. So, I mean, this this person isn't my favorite necessarily, but the person that got me interested into psychology more generally was reading about like Philip Zimbardo, who's famous for like the Stanford Prison Experiment, which has mm-hmm. come under some like <clears throat> methodological scrutiny, I think some of it justified. He's the one who I was like, wow, this is someone setting things that kind of actually like matters or like has enormous social consequences if sure. true, sort service of things. And yeah, I mean, like, and since then, I think he's done and some things that are good and bad. So, not saying he's necessarily a model person. I also think Paul Machinsky, um, I think, wrote probably the best introduction about, like, psychology, how it applies to the workplace, called Psychology Applied to Work, uh, which is really excellent. And I think, you know, where he was viable was just, like, breaking down, like, complex concepts and, like, being charitable to, like, a variety of disagreements. And, like, he was, like, primarily interested in being an educator to people and not, you know, making things accessible to people who may not have, like, a science mind or be statistically knowledgeable. I mean, it's something that's, like, he wasn't interested in having some sort of elitist knowledge uh, group of people that just were keeping people out of information. And I think that's really valuable that a lot of other maybe researchers or social scientists don't necessarily have. Um, did you say my least favorite psychologist?
0: Yeah, your least favorite.
1: My least favorite psychologist is Carl Jung. Okay. Uh, I Probably because of all the awful people he's influenced.
0: Are you saying he's like the archetypal bad psychologist?
1: I don't know if he himself is dark <laughs> archetypal. Yeah, bad psychologist. He's not the worst, but he's not good. And I mean, obviously, like the the, the largest thing he's influenced that remains to this day is like uh, the Myers-Briggs, which is basically like a horoscope. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, like we're still dealing with his influence, even though like no one in academia takes him seriously, except for apparently someone named Jordan Peterson. Mm. Uh, Never heard of him. Yeah, me neither. I just like saw <laughs> someone tweet his name. But uh, yeah, I mean, like, so the, I, I'd say it's not that he maybe necessarily is the worst, but his bad influence seems to have taken the strongest hold and some segments of psychology, but more so like general population and like the general conception.
0: Okay. Towards the end of these conversations, I like to list people or ideas and have my guests respond to them in one minute or less. Uh, you down to do that?
1: I am totally down to do that.
0: Okay, well, let's start from the top. Kamala Harris. Uh,
1: Kamala Harris is a cop. Explain. I could just, like, not say anything and run out my one-minute clock. Um, <laughs> she, I mean, she was a prosecutor. I mean, like, she, she uh, cheered and, like, brags about putting people in prison. I mean, we have to stop normalizing that. We have to stop pretending like that's okay. We can't – I mean, this needs to become as unacceptable as, you know, getting the U.S. – into war i mean mm. not like not like that's unacceptable but like yeah. we have to start having standards here i mean i think it's it's funny that a lot of the people who had hillary you know 2020 in their bios like all of them without a doubt that i've seen it are just now harris 2020 like that it's just sense. all the same people like the white liberals that again like don't actually care about like liberation or more care about like i just want like a strong democratic democrat like winning the election and you know i'm not saying that she's worse than trump like i'm vehemently anti-trump i'm not one of those like both sides are bad kind of a thing that's not what i'm saying but there actually are alternatives to kamal harris running and so i hope she doesn't win and i think that if you do support her you should think critically about supporting people who uh, have the reputation for taking away people's liberty and getting paid for it
0: hell yeah the all meat diet
1: I honestly don't know how you would survive that. I mean, I would probably just have the shits all day. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, it just seems it seems health-wise not good. Uh, but, uh, I mean, ethically, I think it's clearly objectionable and uh, unnecessary.
0: Tom Woods.
1: So, uh, I had a recent... Um, <laughs> An unintentional spat with Tom Woods, he dedicated almost an entire podcast to me, so I'm honored. So it's only fair that I dedicate like a minute to him (laughs) on this. Uh, You know, Tom Woods, I think, has done and said some pretty awful things, but he's also done and said some really great things. And I think he's a great communicator, which makes me really sad that it seems that he's unable to acknowledge where he's wrong. And I know Tom Woods is a smart person. I've listened to Tom Woods before. I don't think he's some kind of opportunist. I mean, I think he's just, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I would love to have a conversation with Tom Woods and say like, look, man, I think we got off on the wrong foot. I think that you just are failing to look at this situation through this lens. And I'd like to think that he would be intellectually honest and hear me out and potentially change some of his views.
0: What was the situation that you got in with him?
1: Um, he had, he hosted a podcast with, uh, on his guest. I don't want to say the name, but someone who's, like, very, like, pretty, like, knowingly not very sophisticated, basically saying that discrimination, it's sort of, like, that's, that's what's so ridiculous about it, like, claiming that discrimination is, A, like, not morally wrong, like, really bad arguments that, like, discrimination is not morally wrong because, like, we discriminate all the time when we choose where to live, uh, or Uh-oh.
0: I think I heard the oh. accent. You might've, you might've let out who he interviewed. Uh,
1: I don't, it's not a very, it's not a very famous person. So, I mean, it's, you probably, it's probably not who you're thinking. I was okay, okay. Famous as like out there as unfamous as I think they are, but like that plus, so that plus like discrimination actually isn't a thing. It's not happening. Um, <laughs> I think. A lot of people took that as like, you're saying those conversations are illegitimate to have. And that wasn't what I was saying. Like when I called that out, what I was trying to say is that those types of things are dog whistles to a specific group of people. Um, It's like talking about like black on black crime. It's like, can you hypothetically think of why that conversation might be like legitimate to have? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But that's clearly a dog whistle. Mm. That's clearly a racist dog whistle, especially in the context of North America. Mm. I mean, that's all I was pointing out. And this was this, this episode, I don't think this intentionally came out at this time, but it, it, it happened right after the white supremacist mosque shooting. Yeah. And so it was just that podcast came out synonymous, like at the same day as another, pod, another like, popular libertarian podcast, which was all about black civil rights, mm-hmm. like Malcolm X. It's just telling what these two sides of libertarianism are devoting their platform to. Yeah, And that's all I wanted to bring up because ultimately, like, I wasn't trying to score points. I wasn't trying to get recheats. I was just discouraged. I was discouraged that there are people who identify with the label I care about that don't care about freedom.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right. Michelle Foucault.
1: Underrated, but (laughs) I probably can't articulate to any intellectual degree why. Okay. So I mean I, I yeah, that's really I think I think underrated, but I feel like anything more will just I'll just get hammered by someone one of my a lot of our mutual like philosophy friends afterwards.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All um, right. So what are some good resources for folks to plug into learn to learn more about animal liberation?
1: Uh yeah, so I mean I there aren't perfect ones, unfortunately. Like obviously the most popular is probably like PETA. And I think most people know the problems with PETA, but you know they, you know they still are probably the most prominent news source. If you're just looking for like general information, um, they're good for that. Even if their marketing or activism isn't always great, the most popular book is still probably Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. Um, he's not a vegan, but like I think he again like appealing to people's like a lot of things they already accept about like sort of expanding the moral circle. Uh, the the book that like was most influential to me. That I still think is probably the best, even if it's a little dated, is eating animals. Um, again, I don't think the author is a vegan, but it's, it's so it's more about like the meat industry. But I think that, that that's really like in a lot of ways, it just gives the information that I think a lot of people just don't know. Like a lot of people just don't know the reality of factory farming, not just to the animals, but to um, like the environment and to the people who work there. And you know, like I think what was what's important about that book is it sort of talks about and it's related to another book I recommend. It's sort of talks about like how we feel about some animals but not others like specifically like the moral duties we feel we have to like our pets like our dogs and cats and we just sort of we just don't feel towards animals that are like clearly like at the same sentient level mm-hmm. like cows or pigs which in many ways are like smarter than cats and dogs yeah so yeah i mean i think that was like one thing that's like, really powerful for me personally like related there's a there's a book called Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. The Logic of um, Carnism, I think, is the subtitle. And that's more, again, like more in depth on that specific subject. How we've grown to think of certain, like prioritize certain animals above others and like dehumanize, for lack of a better word, others. Treating them as just ends in themselves, uh, no matter the cost. And how it's tied up in a lot of like other awful, like, of, like sexism and masculinity and stuff like that. Like the last book that I haven't read and I'm looking forward to reading is called, it's sort of an optimistic book. It's called The End of Animal Farming. I think it came out late last year. Um, and that's all about sort of like the new technology coming out, sort of like techno optimists a bit that will make sort of animal farming obsolete. So, like specifically like lab grown meat and stuff like that. And uh, I need a bit of optimism in my life. So, I, I would recommend that podcast i talked about like the abolitionist approach which i think is a good one that like even if you're vegan like it may challenge like a lot of your like assumptions or like maybe cause you to think about things you hadn't thought about before i don't agree with all of it but i i think the person is incredibly intelligent and like has made me think about several things specifically regarding like pets you know another podcast that's like kind of new it's called the vegan vanguard i'm pretty sure she's so the coast name is i think Mexi. There might be two hosts, but I think Marine and Mexi, and they're both like radical leftists. So they talk, they don't just talk about the animal rights, but they talk about a lot of other things. So if you're like a general like radical leftist, like that's a really good podcast to subscribe to because I think they take like a good like intersectional, like anti-capitalist approach to talking about politics generally. Like they talk about, you know, politics in general, but like always sort of tie in or try to tie in like some sort of animal issue. But, yeah, you'd also just be surprised how many, like, probably leftists or anarchists you like or respect or vegan, like Scott Crow, like someone like that is vegan. So, yeah, that's that's really (laughs) – those are maybe my small list of recommendations if you're interested.
0: Okay. Who are some good thinkers that people should check out to learn more about anarchism?
1: There are a lot. I think it's always – There's nothing wrong with starting with some of the classics. I mean, faltering Declare is getting a lot more attention now, and I think deservedly. I mean, like, she's been more or less ignored for decades, and I think it's finally gaining some prominence and popularity, at least in anarchism and maybe, like, in leftism a little bit. Uh, But she's just written on everything, and, like, she herself, like, went through, like, a variety of stages, and so, like, there's a lot to relate to, if you don't, like, agree with one of her takes to, like, go to another. So, yeah, I mean, I think that is, you know, a good, like, if you're interested in, like, a historical person, that is, that's a good one to sort of turn to. Obviously, Emma Goldman, she's more prominent, but, like, has, like, surprisingly great takes, like, and ahead of her time in a lot of ways. I think more modern. I, I talked about Scott Crow a little bit. Like, he's a good person to follow on Twitter, I think. And I know you interviewed him, um, and it's great. And I think, like, what makes him so appealing is, like, that he's just appealing as a person, like, He seems like a genuinely good person um, and not into this like for like social capital or something like that. I think like uh, obviously like someone who's been really influential to me is someone like someone like Kevin Carson, who has gotten like a lot of praise in your podcast in the past, like from past guests. But I mean, he's really just done a lot of work. We owe him a lot for popularizing market anarchism um, and like decentralism and just things in general like re sort of revitalizing like interest in individualist anarchism more generally and he's still like writing about things that are of interest to like everyone no matter like your political persuasion so i mean like he just deserves a lot of credit and i would love for him to get more mainstream credit you know if you're like more into philosophy i still think like this person is more like leans more libertarian but i think still like the best book about like like in political philosophy about anarchism is Michael Humer's promo political authority. Like it's hard to, it's hard to top that. Um, and I'd say like anyone, if you're like generally interested in like the philosophical arguments, whether you're like a social democrat or is conservative or like, um, you know, like a democratic socialist, check out at least the first half of Michael Humer's like the promo political authority. And I think that'll make whatever politics you have, like that'll make it better. <laughs> hmm. uh, so yeah, those there's just so many I could list off. I guess the last one I'd say is like Gary Chartier. She, he's he was really the main person that like got me into anarchism. I think he's also like really again like a really like rigorous and serious thinker and like thinking about like original ideas. We could go on, but those are those are the people.
0: Okay, yeah, that's good. Is there anything I forgot to ask you that you'd like to touch on before we end the interview, or also maybe any advice that you have for others?
1: Um, I think we, we touched on a lot. Anyone who follows me online like knows I have like a variety of interests, video games and music and whatever. So yeah, I mean, I think we touched on like things probably relevant to the, the audience of the podcast. Again, like the advice I'd give people like the best advice like I've taken myself, it's something I mentioned before. It's just don't feel bad. Don't feel ashamed of getting burned out. That's okay. Sometimes like you're justified in getting burned out. Uh, and like, don't feel bad for having other interests. Don't feel bad for doing things you like to do. Um, I think a lot of times like political activists or social justice activists, they feel guilty if they're doing things that are socially or like that are like pleasing to them and it's really just you're shaming yourself out of self-care like your self-care is important and your self-care has political implications so you should never feel bad about if, it, if you want to play a video game if you don't want to talk about politics you want to play a video game for a week that's okay your self-care matters if you're over talking about you know whatever subject it is like just join another community Join your ch- join a chess club or get into join your church or whatever like it's okay to rotate the communities you're in if they're all important to you so yeah i feel like that's really something i wish i'd sort of taken to heart early on is you know taking care of myself and like being okay with like taking a break from certain spaces and prioritizing others
0: okay cool so christopher richard hudson jr thank you so much for joining me i've really appreciated talking with you if people want to follow you where should they go um you can
1: follow me on twitter uh at chris hudson jr like all one word and then i think like my instagram is probably the same like no that's private (laughs) i've written like a couple blog posts for the circle molinari but like i i don't i i shy away from writing somewhat because i think like my beliefs just change so fast and like i'm always anxious about like regretting something i like immediately write uh (laughs) the feeling i take (laughs) But yeah, I'd say like the the t- Twitter is probably like the best place to reach me. Um, and yeah, let's connect. If you're ever in the Charlotte area, the Carolina area, let hit me up and we can hang out and we can get some vegan food and kombucha and whatever.
0: Cool, Chris. Thanks so much. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. There it is, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed my conversation with Christopher Richard Hudson, Jr. I wanted to remind everyone that they can now use our website, nonservium.media, to check out the entirety of our content. Another big thanks to my patrons for supporting the show, and especially DT Luna for building the website for us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us reach a larger audience, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. And if you aren't able to help financially, simply liking and sharing these episodes helps more than you know. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.